The reading is taken from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 to 22. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Abby. We are continuing our look at the life of Moses. This is our third sermon, so the first sermon we dealt really not with Moses, but with the setting of slavery. Remember that Joshua went to Egypt, was sold into slavery, uh, ended up being, did I say Joshua? And it's Joseph. Joshua comes later, right guys? Am I right? Joseph was sold into slavery, goes to Egypt, becomes the right hand of the person of Pharaoh, and lo and behold, Israel flourishes for 400 years. And then starting at the beginning of Exodus, we see that a new king has come in, or several probably by that point, and began to see the threat of the people of Israel, and they began to harm them. Last week, we saw the miraculous birth of Moses. It's amazing to see how God sovereignly ordained the birth of Moses to come and rescue his people. And then this week, we see, I think, a very interesting passage on Moses growing up and really taking the first steps for being the redeemer of his people. And, and as we look at the Old Testament, we have to remember why we're doing it. We're not, we are people who now know the New Testament. We now know about Jesus. And so some folks like to discard the Old Testament, sort of treat it as sort of a relic. But really, the best way to look at the Old Testament is through the lenses of the New Testament, seeing Christ on the pages of the Old Testament. And realizing that the New Testament doesn't give near as many stories, but principles, ideas that are all very true, resting inside the stories we study. I remember going to, I think, the very first 3D movie I took my boys to, and we're sitting there, and all these, um, you know, the new, all the great new movies coming out are on, and Coleman, who's my my movie buff, you know, he loves uh, all my kids like movies, but he really does. I hear him go, Dad, I can't see. And he'd been chomping on popcorn. And I look over at his 3D glasses, and they are caked with butter. And I just thought, how? And you could, I couldn't get it off. So I had to give him my glasses and sneak out and grab a new set. Um, we need lenses, right? We need lenses to see the beauty of the movie. I think in the Old Testament times, they understood what was happening, but it was very hazy. 
And now we look back and we see Christ. And so the title of this sermon is The Gospel Gives Us Humility because Moses is a picture of Christ and we see Moses' humility. And God always uses humility to rescue us. And so as His people, we also want to be filled with humility. We'll look at three things about Moses' life. His humility leads him to care for other people. It leads him to accept his disappointment. And finally, it leads him to recognize that he is a sojourner. A word we rarely use, but it's in the outline, so enjoy. So those are the three things we'll look at. First of all, humility cares for other people. Here is Moses in the beginning of our passage. It says, one day when Moses had grown up. Now that exact phrase is in the very verse right before it in verse 10. When the child grew up, she, the mom brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. So the same word, grown up, appears in both verses, but obviously in verse 11, he's grown up in a different way. It, it, it seems that he's come to this place where he realizes who he is. He's, he's a prince in the household of Pharaoh on some level, but he's become aware of or fully bought into the fact that he's also someone who cares for his own people. And so we find that even in this very first verse 11, he could do anything he wants in the palace, but he goes out to the Hebrews and he looks on their burdens. And there is just something about the fact that he does this that I think shows the reality of Moses' his understanding of who he is and his need to rescue his people. It's amazing that as a, as a prince who could do anything, that he would find that being a desire. And what happens when he goes out? He sees an Egyptian killing one of the Hebrews, or beating up one of the Hebrew slaves. And it's interesting because a lot of scholars aren't sure what to do with that. Is he doing a bad thing when he kills the Egyptian? You know, it does read like kind of like a, you know, he looked this way and he looked that way, and then he, no one's coming, so I'm going to go kill this guy. That's one possible interpretation. Another one is some scholars say, by looking this way and that way, he's, he's seeing, is anyone going to rescue this poor Hebrew. And when nobody else is coming to rescue, he comes in and helps rescue him. And then in the same way, we see a few verses later after he's fled Pharaoh, he's sitting at this well, and, and here come some female sh- shepherds of some kind, and their their flocks there, and these other shepherds show up and like scatter their flocks, and he cares for them. I mean, of all the times when you shouldn't care, you're like, I just fled from my homeland, I'm tired. Uh, depending on the timing of the situation, but he still cares for them and goes after the sheep, right? Rescues them and gives them water. So Moses is filled with caring. Now, what does that have to do with humility? I think most of us struggle to care for other people. And the reason we struggle to care for other people is all of our energy is wrapped up in our own lives. How am I doing? How are my things going, right? How... Uh, how am I going to succeed in what I'm, what I'm interested in? And how am I going to be seen by other people? And these things fill us up and make it very difficult to care for other people. And one of the premises behind this entire discussion is this. When we come to the Bible and it says, be humble, right? the idea is not that you are supposed to go out and figure out how to be humble. Rather, I hope what you'll hear at Grace and through this sermon and others is that you would be humble if you weren't so self-consumed, if you were not so, pardon the, the harshness here, sinful. We all are so caught up in ourselves 
that we can't be humble or loving or peaceful. And so with the Gospel, when we grab hold of how much God loves us, we can lay down our own self-effort and begin to care for other people. And that is definitely what I think Moses is doing. He's grown up. He looks out. I don't know how far he has to go to see his people in slavery. And he cares. Are we people that care for other people? Recently, we had a youth retreat. My son's wearing the t-shirt, Carnegie Cup uh, t-shirt. And we had a guy named John Talley come out who did a series of team-building exercises that made us all very uncomfortable and exposed and all the things that go with that. And one of them was you wear a blindfold and you walk on like a two-by-four balance beam. And then you step down like six inches and it's about two feet out. And you go another eight or so feet. And then you step down again. And then you have to step down like three feet to find the next two-by-four. And you're blindfolded the whole time. But you have two people, one on each side, and one of those people can tell you what you're supposed to be doing, right? And so the whole point of it, and at least the takeaway I had, see that's how team building oriented I am. I have my own interpretation. I think this is kind of where he was going. For me, the thought was, if I'm in the blindfold and I'm walking, the person giving me the commands has to have empathy, has to be feeling what I'm feeling. What the problem was, and what you often saw, especially the first go-around, because we all three would do it, so the second person thought, well, gee, I just was blindfolded, now I could help better, is that the first person often was just kind of not saying anything. And you're like, you've got to say something. And they're getting closer and closer to the end, and it's like, uh, okay, okay, step down. And you're like, you are not thinking what that person's feeling with the blindfold on. Right? Maybe it's because we're all wondering, what is this all about? Or wondering, I don't want to do this, how embarrassing. But when you act like the person with the blindfold, you will over-give instructions, right? You'll say like, okay, you're doing great. Like eight more feet, three more feet, one more foot. Slow down. Let your toes curl around the end. Okay, now it's going to be uncomfortable, but you have to reach out about two feet and down about, you know, just overdo it. And I think my point in that is to say that's what that showed to me was the fact the only way we can have empathy with other people is when we're not so self-consumed. And all of a sudden, we can begin to have, through humility, we can begin to care for other people. And are you known as someone who cares for others? Practically, do you even listen to people? I mean, I, can, I oftentimes will leave a group, a gathering, and think, oh my goodness, I never, like someone said something, and I just said something. You know, rather than saying the next question, how did that make you feel? Or, that's really neat. You know how we get, even in conversations, we're sort of trying to prove each other that we're the better one. And, and that's just the beginning. Think about what humility could do if we actually began to notice people's needs around us. Even if we had no idea how we could help. Humility creates care for other people. But secondly, for, for Moses, he, he accepts his disappointment. One of the most amazing things about this, this passage for me is you have this hero of the Old Testament. Really, the redeemer in the Old Testament is Moses. And the guy is apparently, at this point, right at the beginning of his life, from Exodus's perspective, not numerically, he's 40 years old probably, he's a failure. He's what Donald Trump would call a loser. I mean, he's just, he's not going to cut it, right? He's, you know, he had all this opportunity, and he blew it. And so here he is sitting at some well in the middle of nowhere with a tribe that's, you know, loosely connected to his forefathers, the Midianites, and he's really a loser, but yet still, somehow, 
he knows that God has something in store for him. And I just that that rings so true. I think most of us, if we're honest, our lives maybe haven't gone the way we wanted. It's very rare that someone would say, "This is exactly what I pictured the whole time." How do you face your disappointments? Are you Uncle Rico? Anyone know who Uncle Rico is? Napoleon Dynamite. He's that that uncle that just can't get past high school football, um, always telling those stories. I think we had that tendency to live in the past. And the reality is we might really be at a low point from our perspective, but God may be preparing us for something greater. And I would argue that in every successful biblical person's life, you see these failures as the place where they really grow and where God is beginning to work. And Moses saw that. Moses sitting there at this well, is able to actually care for these people. He's able to actually chase after their flock. I mean, I don't know that I would do that. I think I might have said, you know, I get a pass. I'm tired. I just got ran out of my homeland, you know. And yet he goes and chases after them. Have you accepted your disappointments? And how do we do that? How does humility do that? By... This is the key of this, I think, this whole passage is humility teaches us to learn to live as sojourners, as people who are in a foreign land. This is what I think, for me, is my most, the most exciting part of this passage is toward the end, or at the very end, here's Moses. So after he rescues the sheep, the flock, whatever the flock is made of, and brings them back, he waters them, right? The women go home with their flock to their dad. And their dad, who's the priest of Midian, says, where is this person? And, and sends for him. And he comes back and they, and they marry. He and Zipporah are married. And now that they're married, they have a son named Gershom. And the name Gershom means, I have been a sojourner. And so you have this real, Moses has this realization that he's a sojourner. Now every time I have read this passage up until this week, I, would have, I, I did just assume he's saying, because I'm not in Egypt. But for the first time, I read that and I thought, wait a minute, there might be more here. And the actual tense of that verb has a much more past tense. It, the problem is it can be translated a few different ways, so it's up to the interpreter to go, what is he saying? I believe Moses is saying, I am no longer a sojourner. In other words, Egypt was a place where I was in sojourning. I had thought it was my home. I was trying to live out of Egypt and, and maybe help the Hebrews, and that failed. And now I've come to Midian, and I'm married, and I have a son, and I, for the first time in my life, I feel in a place that's my own. I'm a so, I'm, I'm a, I was a sojourner. Yet, I know that either interpretation works, because clearly Moses knew that this is not where I'll always be. Right? There is this passion for my people. He knows Aaron, as we know in the next passage, he already knows his sister and brother. He always has that longing. He's in that in-between. And we find ourselves in that same in-between place. And so I guess the question for you, if you are a Christian, is this. Do you feel like a sojourner, an exile? Or do you feel very comfortable in your life? Is everything kind of like where it should be? Or do you comfort yourself by hoping this world will be perfect for you? One of the reasons we're going through 1 Peter is because a lot of 1 Peter mirrors the Exodus. 
In chapter 1, verse 13, Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The actual Greek there is girding up the loins of your mind. Can you see why the interpreter thought, "Eh, let's not use that. How do you gird up the loins of your mind? I actually did a paper on that in seminary. I believe that's the only place that's ever used, ever, is right there. But he's clearly hearkening back to the Exodus, the Passover. Peter has in mind that even as New Testament Christians, we have to be ready to act for Christ based on what he's done. And in verse 17, Peter says this, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each man's work, each man's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. One of the reasons I did this paper is because that sounds so harsh and it's so beautiful. Because when you read that, you're like, oh, here we go, I've got to fear God and he's going to judge me because he does... No, wait a minute, listen to what he says. We call on a father. So we call God Father. Who judges impartially, right? Which means what? We're guilty, right? He says, therefore conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, and not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. What what Peter is saying is you are an exile, a sojourner, precisely because your father purchased you with the blood of Christ. And then in chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And what is he saying? What are the passions of the... How do you say that? What are the passions of the flesh? Is it not this? Is your flesh not teeming with the enemy Satan to convince you that your father is not good? Just like in the garden, just like the story of the fall, where Satan says, is he really good? Does he really love you? Is he really rescuing you? And our flesh has taken that baton and run that race as fast and swiftly as Satan, waging war in our soul to convince us that we do not have a Jesus who loves us. So here we are reading this Old Testament passage, and we have to ask the question, and I encourage you always to do this when you read a text like the Old Testament passage, to what character did you all relate to in that passage, right? Most of us have been taught, we were, well, we're Moses, right? Because we're Americans, and that's what Americans do. You find the hero, and you say, how do I relate to that hero? And that's not all wrong. There's something, something that's helpful. Think about David and Goliath. Most of us have been taught to read David and Goliath and say things like, how do I slay my giant? And then pray that God would help me find a stone and slay my giant. But really, if you're reading that passage in 1 Samuel, you would go, I relate with all the people who are terrified just watching this giant yell. That's who I am, right? And here comes a Savior, David, to slay the giant. And what does everybody do the moment Goliath falls? They stand up and they race in, okay? So when you read a passage, it's helpful to say, who do I relate with? And I don't know that Moses is the... Though we learn from Moses, I think there are other options. One option, and I think all of us have to agree we relate on some level with this person, unnamed, 
is the jerk Hebrew person. Here comes Moses. Out. He's, and by the way, the Bible is clear. There was one of the two Hebrews that was in the wrong. So one guy's beating up the other guy. And the other guy's like, bless his heart. And this one's like a jerk. And he looks back at Moses and says, who made you prince and judge over us? And it's the most ironic statement I've ever said. Well, first of all, next chapter, Yahweh, right? But even if you don't know that's going to happen in 40 years, I am the Pharaoh's son or grandson. I mean, you know, that makes me a prince. Like, I, you know, usually that sarcastic question is like, good point. Anyway, Moses doesn't defend himself, right? But I think there's a part of us that has to relate with that Hebrew. Like, we do look at Jesus and go, who made you judge? The question is this, are you a Christian? For those of you in this room, and statistically, I don't have people in mind. I always hate looking at people. They're like, oh, it's me. He thinks I'm not a Christian. But we know that some people aren't believers. And your heart is that Hebrew heart. Who made you judge? And prince. But for those of us that are Christians, hopefully we can say, man, I see that tendency. I feel that question often rising in me, and I hate that about myself. Thanks be to Jesus. That's not who I think we relate to. There's a better person to relate to, and it's a woman, and her name is Zipporah. She meets the same Moses at a well that the Hebrew met. And she's in turmoil. She has a job to do, and these guys have shut up and ruined the thing, and the flock's gone everywhere. And Moses goes out and gathers her flock and brings it in. And then he waters them, which is a very hard thing to do. And you just get this picture. I would love to see what Hollywood would do with this, of her going back to her father-in-law, and just that sense of him going, wait, you're telling me that this guy, he's single, right? Yeah, he's single. And... And he did all of that for you. I think this is your guy. Go back. Go get him. Yeah, yeah, I'm going. And she goes back and and just this beautiful picture of a bridegroom that would pursue his bride. And that is a picture of Jesus. We are Zipporah, in my opinion. That's a helpful way to read this passage. We need desperately to see that Jesus has pursued us. While we were having all these problems in our life, He came in. While yet still a sinner. Right? And He rescued us. Not because of anything we've done, but because of His precious love for us and He saved us. And that is an alien righteousness. I I think of John 13 with the feet washing. I talk about it a lot. But here you have this room full of guys that are consumed with position. and Who's going to be on the left and the right? Who's the best one here? And there's nobody to wash their feet. And it's Jesus who precisely because He's an alien, in other words, He's not one of them, He doesn't have the flesh, He's not tainted by sin. Had anybody else been sinless in that room, they would have stood up as well. But He's the only candidate who could stand up and and remove His outer garments because He knew where He had come from and He knew where He was going. He could serve them. That's humility. But it only comes in John... In John 13, the point is made, it only comes when we've received it first. Have you received that kind of love? Do you see yourself as married to that Savior? Are you His bride? We need someone from the outside to come in.
One of my illustrations that I've probably used before, I, I just reuse them, and I'm sorry. But I, if I haven't, I hope you'll say, I've never heard that one before. But it just one time, I, I told you as a child, I, I used to like to think of superheroes, right? And you, the first thing you do is you come up with a great-looking costume and some kind of thing, like a cat guy or taco man, I don't know. Well, the dumbest one has to be Superman. I'm not trying to be mean, but just come on. What, is, what can your superhero, everything. can fly, can laser beams, can, you know, just anything. That's the kid that everyone's like, come on, get realistic. How on earth could your superhero have done that? My, my guy was bit by a spider, and his guy was hit by a taco truck. How could your superhero be that powerful? Uh, he was born on another planet. Tell us more, right? Because he couldn't have been from here. And that is the gospel. Jesus was born from above. And he comes down to rescue and to look on his brothers, just like Moses, and to rescue us and to marry us. And the question we have to ask is, have we received that? And here's where I want to get to the application. Here's the evidence of receiving it. You will be humble. So here's the bad news. The bad news is most of us aren't humble. The good news is he still loves you, right? But we need to repent. I said that in the confession. That's the Christian life. So when I'm not humble, what am I being? I'm doing things like gossiping. You know, I'm complaining, right? Um, I'm bragging or boasting. I'm not listening. I'm nervous. I'm anxious. Take any one of those sins, just one moment, one example in your life, and, and lay it out on the Petri dish, and look under the microscope, and what you'll find is that what you're doing in those moments is you're resisting the Spirit. You are finding life in yourself. You're deathly afraid of trusting Jesus. So that if someone says something that they did that was better than you, there's that fearful thought of, I have to prove myself. But what if you don't? Right? What if you can just say, great job? Right? That is the gospel. And it's not um, that you have to go put something on and get better and learn techniques of smiling and good conversation. Those are great things, but it's that your heart is trusting you are already engaged. And I think even in our own culture, I want to be careful not to sound sexist and all that, but people, I mean, you see someone, um, I was looking... Uh, anyway, no one. Yeah, I was I was looking at Facebook, and I have a good friend from high school, or I pretty good friend. But I, okay, it's, that sounded weird because he wasn't that great of a friend. He's a friend of a friend. But I never really knew who he married, and I've heard about them since then. And he's really successful, and I and then I realized that girl that he married dated one of my other really good friends, and then I just had this thought: she really hit it big. She struck it rich. And this guy's really successful, and now her whole life has changed. So women that are not married yet, there's your hope. Just kidding. Jesus is the home run. And when we see ourselves as his bride, we can be changed. And, all, and it's not because of anything we're doing or not doing. We can just simply lay it all at his feet. Lay down the weapons and say, I am Christ. And that humility can begin to pour out because of the fact that in humility, Jesus left his seat above to pursue us and to change us. So if we need humility, if you're struggling, it's because you don't believe that.
And we have a table here that we will go to in just a few moments after our confession. And what we do at this table is we confess and we follow, we say, I am engaged to be the Lord's. And He has come and He has brought His blood and He has brought His bread that we might be in union with Him. And that marriage on earth is a picture of that real marriage. And that's what our hope is in.